Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And even before we get there, keep that place in the Bible. But look up at the screen. You can see Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 is just one of those passages of Scripture that keeps the church ticking along, kind of keeps the church running along properly. It's, it's one of those really helpful passages of what the church is to, to kind of the way it's structured and, and what it's to do. It's just a little bit there. Let me read that for you. And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're building up the body of Christ. So, so the Lord Jesus gave these offices, and, and, and for our purposes today, especially pastors or shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so we just, we glean from this passage that pastors are to equip the church and then with that equipping that we receive, we, we take that equipping, we do that equipping from God's Word, and from that equipping we all do the ministry. We all do the work of the ministry, and we do that ministry to one another. And ministry, as you know, simply means service. And so what we do is we serve one another. Now, this is critical for the building up of the church. The church cannot be built up without your ministry one to another. It's critical for the building up of the church. It's critical for maturity. Certainly pastors should be doing ministry, but certainly pastors can't do all of the ministry that needs to be done. One of the ways we try to structure this is to have care groups, and we have care group leaders, and I have been amazed at the ministry you have done to one another. So, Let's put it this way. I think we can glean from this passage that a mark of an immature church is when the pastors do all the ministry. And the mark of an immature church is when no ministry is happening. People are not serving one another. But a mark of a maturing church, not that any of us have attained maturity or are perfectly mature, but a mark of a maturing church, a church that's in process of growing up in Christ, is the ministry activity of its members. The ongoing ministry that members do to one another. The ongoing way that ministers serve one another. And you are doing this. And as we mentioned a couple of times, what a season it has been in the life of Crossway Church. Many are hurting. Some have lost their parents recently. Others have lost babies recently. Others have have been in times of, of... financial or medical difficulty. It's been a challenging time, and yet I keep hearing word of your good works, of your good works in the name of Jesus toward one another, of your love for one another. That is ministry, and it's awesome, and it's the mark of a maturing church. I do think that sometimes we struggle to understand how to do gospel ministry. I think part of that is born of, of, of simply, 
we're going about serving and, and, and with the mark of humility. And sometimes we think, well, this isn't what I'm doing here, bringing this meal or helping with parking or, or just calling someone to comfort them. Well, that's not really ministry. I mean, all I did was pick up the phone or go visit someone. But that is ministry. That is comfort. That is service to one another. It truly is. But I think sometimes we, we may uh, boil or, or, or uh, minimize it or trivialize, not, not that we mean to trivialize it, but we, we don't grasp what ministry is or gospel ministry is because we're doing it. We may not realize how significant it is. Or sometimes, even though the concept of serving one another is simple, it can, it can feel kind of difficult. Well, how do I do this? You know, when I, I know I, I, I serve here and there in these particular ways. I do this thing at church and I did this nice thing for someone. But, but in an ongoing way, what does it mean to do gospel ministry? Maybe, maybe a more precise way to answer it is this, or ask it, is this. What are the priorities in gospel ministry? What are the priorities in gospel ministry? <clears throat> and this is where the Thessalonian miracle comes in. And I'm calling it the Thessalonian miracle because there's really no other way to describe the birth and endurance of this church. And if you've been tracking or if you've been, been studying Thessalonians on your own, I encourage you to do that. Take up the Bible, read Thessalonians. You will find it encouraging to your soul on so many fronts. But that's really the only, only thing you can call the birth and endurance of this church. It's a miracle that this church happened. You may remember from Acts 17, we looked at Acts 17 last week. Acts 17 tells the story of Paul and Silas and Timothy coming to Thessalonica. And what they do is for three Saturdays, three Sabbaths, they go to the synagogue and they proclaim Jesus Christ. So they go in there and they, they tell all those who are in Judaism, all the Jews there and the Gentiles that would gather there because they were fearing God and, and, and they would proclaim to them, the Messiah you're looking for, the Savior you desire has come. His name is Jesus. And Paul would argue very persuasively in that place, that Jesus was Messiah, that he was Savior. He was the anointed one. And he would tell them what Jesus had done. And just from those, those three weeks of ministry, now it's possible they were there for a little bit longer, but it appears if they were there any longer than three weeks, it wasn't much longer. Just from those three weeks, people put their trust in Jesus. And they called him Savior. They said, I, I want him to forgive me of my sins through his sacrifice and grant me eternal life through his resurrection. And then you, you know the story of what happened is that the Jews that didn't believe were angry with Paul for proclaiming that Jesus was Messiah. And so they stirred up a mob that became violent, not just, not just Jewish mob, but Gentile mob, this mob became violent, and they went and they grabbed this guy that, was, that evidently had believed, his name was Jason, and they took him and they brought him to the city officials because they couldn't find Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And they basically were threatening to throw these guys in jail, and these guys had to put up bond. And then that night, the believers said to Paul and Silas and Timothy, you got to get out of town now. And they snuck out of the city that night. And so... What happened is Paul and Silas went on. They went on to Corinth. And 
And from there, they weren't sure about what was going to happen to those believers. Now, can you imagine if the person that brought you the gospel brought you the gospel and you believed, but then they were gone within three weeks, they were out of your life, you, didn't, you weren't able to text them, you couldn't call them, you couldn't email them, you couldn't Skype them. There's no Facebook. They're just gone. And, and, and you saw what happened in response to their message that this violent crowd raised up. What would happen to your faith? Well, I think humanly speaking, we look at them and say, well, of course, that church would, would be stomped out. The little ember that, that started to grow into a flame would be stomped out quickly. It would go out. But it didn't go out. Because when God goes to save people, he cannot be stopped. And so the Thessalonian church grew from a little ember into a strong flame, even though the apostles had to leave abruptly and didn't know what would become of their work. And that is the story of the Thessalonian miracle. It is so unlikely that these believers would have endured, but they did, that it is a miracle. And the miracle of this precious Thessalonian church shows us how to do gospel ministry. It's an opportunity for us to look in and to see how to do gospel ministry. So when Paul, who is in Corinth now, and Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they're anxious about the, the, the outcome of the Thessalonian church, he begins to, actually they send Timothy and they get a report, and in response to the report that Timothy gives them, he writes a letter. And in that letter he writes, in the first chapter you may remember, he's giving thanks to God for all of these responses to Jesus, all of the right responses to Jesus. The world responds negatively negatively to Jesus, but those that are saved respond rightly to Jesus. And, and Paul's praising God for all of them. It's this incredible chapter of how to just glorify God for all the ways that, that when people respond rightly to Jesus Christ. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we get this long running commentary, and it's, it's part explanation of why Paul didn't return It's part explanation of what's happening inside of them, the work that God's doing. It's part an expression of his love for them and his desire to come to them. That's what's happening in the next two chapters here, chapters 2 and 3 of this letter. And today, instead of handling all that, we're going to break it down a little bit. We're going to handle verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2. But through this writing of Paul, we get to see some glorious things. And so in all of his explaining of why they haven't been back yet, we get to see how to do gospel ministry. Now, of course, we're not apostles. We're not first century apostles. Jesus did not appear to us and deliver to us the gospel himself as he did with Paul. But we have come to believe in that gospel that Paul and the other apostles testified to. And so throughout this letter, and these verses we're going to focus on today, there's so much for us to learn 
about gospel ministry. So, so just simply this morning, the Thessalonian miracle teaches lessons for us in gospel ministry. And we're just going to learn three lessons. They're going to help us prioritize what ministry is, what gospel ministry is to one another and to those outside of us. And here are the three lessons for us to learn from the Thessalonian miracle. First of all, cherish the gospel entrusted to you. Secondly, be affectionately desirous of those around you. And third, become a good imitator. Become a good imitator. Cherish that gospel. It's been entrusted to you. And be affectionately desirous of those around you. And third, become a good imitator. And if you don't understand all that I'm getting at right there, that's okay. I'm going to, Lord willing, fill that out a little bit here. But keep in mind as we go through this that this is a miracle that's happened to the Thessalonians. And in this miracle, and explaining this miracle, and talking about what God has done among them and why he hasn't been back, Paul's going to teach us how to do gospel ministry to one another. Let's take a look at that first, um, that first lesson is to cherish the gospel entrusted to us. Cherish the gospel entrusted to us. Let me, we're going to take a look here at verses 1 to 4, but just before we get into that, I want you to keep something in mind about the gospel, about the message of Christianity. Even though Christianity is popular to this day, it's still popular in the United States. Even though there's much more negative talk about Christianity these days than perhaps ever in our history as a nation, it's still rather popular to be a Christian. There's still a majority of people in the United States that would, that would claim, I am a Christian. But here's what we need to know about the Christian message, about the gospel. And we've talked about this before. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this message, will get you in trouble. It will get you in trouble. We just talked about what happened to Paul and Silas and Timothy when they preached the gospel in Thessalonica. But here's what we need to know is that just before they went to Thessalonica, they were in Philippi. And you may know the story of what happened to them at Philippi. In Philippi, they went in and they began to preach and some people began to get saved. And while they were getting saved, Paul and Silas would walk to this place and they would preach and then they would walk back. And on the way back, there was this demon-possessed girl who was in the business of fortune-telling. She was kind of a slave, and, and, her, and she would do fortune-telling for her master who would profit from her. And when she would see Paul and Silas, every day she would follow them back, and she would point at them, and she'd cry out, these men are servants of the Most High God. It's kind of hard to know what's going on there, but you can imagine. It's kind of embarrassing. What's, what's amazing is that, or, or, well, what's kind of fun is that, I think it's uh, verse 18 of chapter 16, the Scripture actually says, and Paul became greatly annoyed. He became greatly annoyed with this. I don't know if the girl was mocking, but there was something very unsettling about it, just drawing attention on a helpful way. So he turns around, he rebukes the spirit, exercises the demon, and she's, she's free of the demon. Only problem is now her owner, who used to profit from her business, becomes upset with this. And they get a group together. They take Paul and Silas. They throw them before the magistrates of the town. Those magistrates tear their clothes, beat them with rods, throw them in jail, put them in bonds. That's what happened to Paul and Silas because they preached the gospel. Now, that's not the whole story. You'll have to read more about what happens to them in Philippi. It's truly amazing. But keep in mind, they preach the gospel. They get beaten, thrown in jail, have their clothes torn. 
For some of us here that are into fashion, that'd be the worst part of that, wouldn't it? You tore my, you tore my Banana Republic sweater. But then they go from there and they turn right around, they go to the next town and they preach the gospel again. And it gets them in trouble again. And really we we have to keep coming back to this reality. The message of Jesus Christ gets us into trouble. They're simply telling people about Jesus and quickly finding themselves attacked in the most barbaric way. The problem is that the message we carry is a dangerous one. It's unsettling. And, and some of the scriptures help us understand it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, is folly, it's foolish, to those who are perishing. But to, to, to us who are being saved, it's what? The power of God. The power of God to take our sin away. The power of God to transform us to be more like Jesus. The power of God to keep us through a lifetime and sustain us in grace. And the power to take us home to Him when we pass. But for those who are perishing, for those who don't believe, it is foolishness. And some will say it's not just foolish, it's dangerous. And so they turn on the messenger. Another passage that helps us understand is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2. Could I get that slide advanced? I have a little trouble here. Thank you. It says this in verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, it's challenging. What he's saying is, listen, when a Christian enters the room... He, he smells, uh, maybe not literally, hopefully not literally, but, but there's, a, there's something you can perceive about that believer. And there's something God-word about the believer, right? There's faith in Christ there. And so when the unbeliever comes into contact with them, it's this idea of an aroma, but it's not a pleasant aroma because it reminds them of God's reality, and what God requires of us, and how holy and perfect God is, and how lost we are without a Savior. But for other Christians, oh, that aroma is sweet because their faith encourages us to endure all the more. And you see, this message will get us in trouble because people don't like to be reminded that they're in trouble with God. And so that's a problem. When my father worked for Full Life Electric Company, one of the, uh, one of the executives was rather anti-Christian. And uh, through a series of events, I don't have time to describe it all, began to accuse him of proselytizing in the workplace. This was probably early 80s. And, and he brought this accusation against my father, and my father had to, had to, go, um, had to go before a, a committee of executives. And uh, a humorous, humorous part of that is one of the accusations was unrelated. It was that Sam, Sam eats other people's lunches. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing worse you can do than eat somebody else's lunch. You want to see what happens in the office when one of the guys eats, you know, touches another guy's lunch. But 
But when, my, when, when that came up, the accuser came up, my dad said, do you mean that time when you stuck out that bag of pretzels and asked me if I wanted some and I took some? And the guy said, yeah, that's what, that's what I meant. So that's a whole other story. But, but there was this accusation that, he was, that he, was, he was pushing his faith on others. And the, the, the person they brought in to testify against him she was, she was very quiet. And so this, this one executive was making these accusations. And then they, the other executives turned to the witness and said, did he do that to you? And amazingly, she said, no, Sam has never pushed his faith on me. And I said, okay, you can go. And he was entirely exonerated. And this executive who was against him said, you, can't, you know you can't tell people about your faith. And my dad said, listen, I try to be appropriate, but if someone asks me about my faith, I'm going to tell them. And that was the end of the matter. But you can see how forces are aligned. This message can get us into trouble. Now, maybe your experience is not this dramatic with the gospel, but know this. When you tell people that you trust Jesus, some people will have a negative opinion of you. And some people may even act on that negative opinion of you. It might be as simple as, as not being uh, warm and open to you, or it might be something worse. But know that this message will get us into trouble. But even though this message got Paul and Silas and Timothy into trouble, they were still compelled to go on to Thessalonica to see what would happen to them there, to see what would happen there. Let me read for you verses 1 to 4 to find out why they did that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see, they're what's not motivating them. So they're, so they're getting into trouble by preaching this message, but they keep doing it, and they keep getting into trouble. What's motivating them? Well, what's not motivating them is error. They're not just simply wrong. You know, this isn't someone who's, who's sincere, but sincerely wrong about their faith. And, and the reason they know it's true is because Paul saw Jesus. He, he saw the resurrected Christ. Now, see, if he was in error, if he was unsure, you would think he'd back down after getting into trouble time and time again. But not only did the Lord reveal himself to Paul, he kept revealing himself to Paul. You know, this is not a quick way to get rich and famous. Clearly, this was a way to receive beatings, and yet he kept going. But not only was it not error, but, but Paul was, he was not motivated by, um, uh, by impurity. And so, it's not about getting rich for Paul. It's, it's not about duping others with deception to get what he can from them. 
It's about something else. You see, he's been, he's been entrusted with something so precious. Do you remember when Jesus is before Pilate and Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate resorts to the philosopher's conundrum. What is truth? <laughs> How can I know truth? How can there be truth? And he walks out, turns Jesus, the Son of God, over to be crucified. A lot of people do that today. But when you have the truth and you know it's the truth, it is so precious that, yes, it is worth even dying for. And Paul had been entrusted with that truth. He had been entrusted with the gospel. And being entrusted with the gospel meant something. It meant that they had been approved by God. Turn with me. Uh, keep your, your finger there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 4. Look what this says here in verse 4. Now this is Paul and the brothers talking about the Thessalonian Christians. He says this in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. See, when God chooses you, when you believe, it's evidence that you've been loved by God. And that's why they're that's why they're pleased to speak the truth of the gospel. Because they've been entrusted with the gospel, which means that they've received favor from God. They've been approved by God. They know the love of God. They've been loved by God, which is why they have the gospel in the first place. And that since God set his love on them, now they want to bring God glory. They want to say to God, they want to say, Here's what God did for us. You need to know that my whole life is about him. My whole life is for him. Even if you hate me and take my life, you're going to hear from me the truth about Jesus Christ, the Savior. They're loved by God. And God is working in them to purify their motives. See, it says that it says God tests the heart. And so they're, they're doing what they've been called to do. They're, they're taking that gospel they've been entrusted with and that shows they're approved by God and they're, they're proclaiming it to others, even those that may, they may not like to hear it. And in that, God's purifying their hearts. It's kind of like a gut check. Do you really want to do this? Are you really going to do this? In a few weeks, I'm going to have a tonsillectomy. Um, I'm not looking forward to it. They say that the recovery for an adult is brutal. And uh, every day I have to ask myself, do I really want to do this? And um, the reason I want to do it is because I have sleep apnea. And I, and I, I can't breathe. And so I, I'm at a point in my life where it's, it's, it's like, well, oxygen or surgery? <laughs> All right, let's get the oxygen. And so I'm planning to have this tonsillectomy. You know, I think that's a similar ultimatum here. It's God's glory or your own glory with the gospel. Let's choose God's glory. We've been entrusted with the gospel. That means we have God's approval, his favor, his love. And this is the motive for your life, the glory of 
God. I, I was talking with a, a young man who's, it, it seems that God is saving him, and, and he's been blessed in, in his career, so blessed. It's, a, it's amazing that at his young age, he's been so blessed. And, and, he's, and he's saying things like, and it just, I was, it was so powerful and striking. He didn't understand, of course, just what, what an amazing work of God that's going on in him. But he's saying things like, I, 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 I want to live for God, but it's not because I'm afraid he's going to take all this away from me. He said, of course I'm afraid. Oh, I don't want to lose all, all this, but I, I just, I'm just amazed that he would be so kind to me. I, just, I want to live for him. And he's, and he's using words like that. Yes, that's the motive that grips the heart of the believer, the one who's been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Look what God has done for him. What John said earlier, be amazed at the miracle of grace that has come to you, that you have been saved. Keep God's glory in view. We have to move on. The Thessalonian miracle teaches lessons in gospel ministry. So we have to cherish that gospel that's been entrusted to us. That's number one. But secondly, a second lesson we need to keep in mind is to be affectionately desirous of those around us, to be affectionately desirous of those around us. And, and this, this expression, he was affectionately desirous. We're going to read it here in just a moment. But it's that idea of a heart of love for others or, or goodwill for, toward those that are around us, willing to work for the good of others. And I think certainly within that, a self-sacrificial love or goodwill for those around us. Let me read for you verses 5 to 12 of First Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And what's amazing here is you get, you get, you get two of the greatest earthly illustrations for, for self-sacrificial love that, that, you can, that you can have, that you can point to, and that's mother and father. So with the mother, the image is that, that nursing mother. And if you've ever seen a mother, the way she carries an infant, it's so dear and so precious. And, you know, she, there's like this... Um, this sort of protection in the arms that goes around that infant because the, the head is, is soft and, and the body is frail and, and you want to hold that baby in such a way that no one's going to bump you, no one's going to bump into that baby and you might walk a little more slowly, a little more gently trying to keep that baby nice and secure. Paul's saying, we did that among you. 
in our time there. We, we didn't want to bump into you. We didn't want to give you something that you couldn't handle. We didn't want to give you food that you're not ready for. We had, to, we, had to, we had to baby you and take care of you. Then you get the other illustration on the other side of it, and this is the father. And you kind of get the sense of, of a child growing up, and the father is exhorting and encouraging. And, you know, the, the child does something good. What does the father do? He's, he should encourage, well done, good job. Keep going. Keep doing that. And then when something's not well done, hey, listen, don't do it that way. Do it this way. Turn from that. Let me correct that and let me, let me get your eyes set in the right direction. So you get father and mother who are pouring out their lives for their children. This is what Paul's saying he's done for them. That's affectionately desirous for them. It's not flattery. It's not about greed. It's not what can I get out of it. That's what flattery is. It's, it's trying to make someone feel good so you can get something out of them. But encouragement is pointing out the grace of God to them, how God is at work and how that encourages others. And so this isn't getting glory from people. It's, there's, something, there's something powerful here about being affectionately desirous. You see, here's the thing. The gospel makes a claim on our entire person. A Christian minister can't simply be a teacher. I mean, I, I guess you, you can do that, but it, it's not simply like an instruction manual. Let me show you how to use this new gadget you just received. Here's the instruction manual or this appliance. Read these things and now you know how to use it. And, and actually, you know, the person who wrote that never, you know, they never meet you. They don't really, there's no connection. That's not the way it works with Christian instruction, with Christian equipping, with gospel life. You see, as, as, as we are affectionately desirous of one another, part of what goes into it is our heart. We don't just tell people the gospel. We demonstrate it. We live it with them. We open ourselves up to be hurt by them. We relate to them. We, we have to overcome offenses. And we humble ourselves and recognize sometimes I'm the one that's offensive. And so when we walk in the Christian gospel, we open our lives. We're, we're not just professors. No, we have to bear the gospel. We have to live it out. There is this essence in the Christian message. What is the essence of the Christian message? It's sacrificial love. Jesus dying for sinners like us. Now it's effective because Jesus did it. But we're supposed to know that love that he's shown us, which cost him everything, and do that for others. And do that for others. And that has to be borne out in us. That has to be borne out in, in us toward one another. Now that doesn't mean that we throw out priorities. Please don't misunderstand Jesus prioritized things in life. There were times when, when people wanted to be healed or they wanted to hear him teach and he went off to pray on his own or he was resting. There were those times. And, and there, are, there are times that the Scriptures show us what priorities are, like taking care of our family first. You know, the, the Scripture says if, if, if there's a, a, a widow, let her family take care of her first. So that's not the burden the church. But if there's someone in need and they don't have family, then the church should help that person in need. You see, the church becomes their family. 
And so there's a priority. There's, a, there's an order. And we understand that. We're not throwing that out. We're not, we're not looking to, to be foolish in life. Scripture teaches us to prioritize. It even says those that don't work don't eat. And so we have, to, we have to provide. We have to work to do so. But when someone's in need, we give them the, of the food that we have. We sacrifice so that they can have. So talking about the gospel making a claim on our entire persons doesn't mean that we have no priorities, but it does mean we give ourselves for the good of others and we do so wholeheartedly. Now, here's the thing. In our material society, our material culture, which frankly I think has been all of human history, and not just the, the culture of the United States today, although because we are so prosperous as a nation, I think it encourages this. So we have the test of prosperity. But from within us, our material impulses don't lend themselves very well to self-sacrifice. What they lend themselves to is self-gratification. And so think about this. You know, we want things. We, we see things. We, we, we see material. I, it's hard to walk through a Home Depot with not, without wanting everything. You know, it's, it's hard to go shopping without wanting more. And, and when you think about movies and games and all of the entertainments that are laid out for us, you know, none of those things are really geared toward, hey, lay down your life for someone else. They're all geared to have as much enjoyment as you possibly can, right? Now, please, I'm not trying to set up new laws, and I'm not telling you not to go to movies or play any games, but I am saying our material impulses connecting with society don't lend themselves to self-sacrifice. And it's hard to be affectionately desirous for others if all of our affections are going inward. You see that? And so we all need to grow. We all need to grow in this. I think Paul, when he's saying we were affectionately desirous for you, what he's saying is, is in love. We, we looked at you and we thought, oh, Lord, thank you for this person. And, 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 and I want to see them that, I want to see that they know you, Lord God. I want to see them walking with you, Lord Jesus, and that they would come to put their faith in you. And then after they had placed their faith in Jesus, I want to see them grow in you and mature in you and know all of your grace, oh, God. That was their affectionate desire toward them. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy did everything they could, sacrificing themselves for the good of these Thessalonian believers. And and they're encouraging them to do that one another. And we can learn the same thing here. God has placed unbelievers near you, unbelievers in your life. Are you affectionately desirous for them? You know, self-righteousness doesn't do much to advance the gospel. We know that, right? We should expect an unbeliever to act and talk like an unbeliever, like someone who rejects Jesus Christ. But here's a question. If you're in proximity to them, do you have in your heart that affection that says, I, I, would, I would sacrifice to see them come to know Jesus and behave in that manner? And then when they come to know Jesus, and, 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 and among us right here, one another right here, do we have that heart where I would give up my time for the good of my brother and sister? I would, I would lay aside some, some, some time. I would give up some rest, or I would 
Now, again, not, not throwing out all priorities. I'm not saying to throw out all priorities. But I'm saying to do sacrifice for the love of one another so that we can see one another grow. Now, I've seen many examples of this, and I could really go on about that. It really wouldn't be hard to do that, but I will move on. But I want to encourage us. We need to be affectionately desirous because that's what the gospel calls us to, and that's what our Lord has for us. And so we've looked at cherishing the gospel and we've learned the lesson now that we need to be affectionately desirous of others. Now let's learn another lesson. That is we need to become a good imitator. We need to become a good imitator. And imitation doesn't have the best reputation, does it? If there's one thing I really dislike, it's imitation crab meat. Because if there's one thing I love, it's crab meat. I enjoy crabs. Don't put some imitation crab meat in front of me. I can spot it like that. I will ask you if this is real. You know, some of these restaurants, I list it on there, oh, it's stuffed with crab. And you get it, and it's, you know, it's the, it's the seafood equivalent of a chicken McNugget in your food. <laughs> what could be worse? Wouldn't you rather eat processed chicken than processed seafood? I digress. Imitation, you know, imitation doesn't usually have the best reputation. A lot of times when we talk about someone imitating someone else, it's, it's, not a, it's not a flattering statement. But it does depend on who you're imitating, doesn't it? I remember when I first became part of Sovereign Grace Ministries, our little family of churches. One of the things that troubled me a little bit was, was how many people imitated C.J. Mahaney who was leading Sovereign Grace Ministries at the time. He was one of our founders as a family of churches, and now he's a church planter in Louisville, Kentucky. And, and I think when, if you were in Sovereign Grace for a while, you didn't realize that you were imitating him so much. So from, as an outsider perspective, you know, Grace and I would see people imitating his gestures and, and his uh, using the same words and even the same tone to communicate certain things. And that was a little unsettling. However, when we heard his gospel teaching and the effect that it had on us, we thought, well, that's, that's not a problem. I, you know, uh, I'll just make sure I don't, that, that I remain true to myself. I keep it real. And I remain Pete Privatera. But I want that gospel message. And so I had this little bit of a haughty attitude toward those that I thought were maybe imitating CJ too much. And then not that long ago, back in August of 2012, we had CJ come and preach to us for one of our uh, opening Sundays here in, in the place. And after he preached, someone came up to me later and said, wow, I never saw CJ preach before. And now I see where you get it from. And and I see that you're trying to be like him. You see that you're trying to imitate him. And yeah, I was like, I didn't say anything because, because I've learned a couple things since then. But, but I thought that's exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to do here. But here's, here's something I've learned over the years. That when you have a compelling individual, and, and especially someone who has a, a, a compelling message, Without even realizing it, you're affected by them. And you just start to imitate them. I saw this in myself with Jeff, Jeff Perswell at the Pastors College. I saw that I began to imitate some of, some of his mannerisms and gestures. And I think it just rubs off. And so 
If you're imitating someone who's got the gospel, that's not a bad thing. And you've heard the expression, imitation is the highest form of flattery. I want to change that a little bit to imitation is the highest form of, of evidence. And in this case, imitating those who have the gospel is the highest form of evidence that we have the gospel as well. Let me read for you 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins." But God's wrath has come upon them at last. God's wrath has come upon them at last. And so, so Paul's rejoicing because they received Jesus. But how did Paul know that they had received Jesus? So they, they heard the word of God preached. Much as I'm preaching today about Jesus Christ, he's the Savior. Won't you trust him today? Your sins will be forgiven and you'll receive the inheritance of eternal life. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy were preaching, and, and they believed. And how did Paul know that they believed? Because they were imitators. Imitators of what? Imitators of those that suffer for the name of Jesus. See, it comes back full around to the first lesson. We're cherishing the gospel. Because this message is going to get you in trouble. Do you cherish it enough? And so when it got them in trouble and they suffered, Paul said, there it is. That's the evidence. Your imitation of that suffering is the evidence. Now, they were suffering terribly. What had happened? Well, Paul's saying, listen, when I, when, when I and the other apostles preach to the, to the Jews, what happens is the, uh, some of the Jews believe and some of them say, no, he's not the Messiah, and they become angry. And they say, you're threatening, threatening our way of life, and they become violent toward us. And Paul's saying what's especially bad about that is that, that not only do they want to stop us from preaching about Jesus, which, which you can imagine, if Jesus is the Savior, what can be worse than stopping someone from preaching about the Savior? That's why he's talking about it in these strong terms. But Paul's saying they not only were trying to keep us from telling other Jews, but they, they're, they're stopping us from telling Gentiles, from getting the word out about Jesus. And Paul's saying, but you know, it's not just the Jews. You experience from your own countrymen affliction. See, it's not, it's not limited to a particular ethnicity. We're all equal opportunity offenders in the eyes of God in terms of our sin. And, and we've all been given the opportunity to see Jesus as the Savior. And so salvation is full and free for those who will trust Jesus. 
And so there it is. And he's saying, you also suffer at the hands. I suffered at the hands of many Jews, but you suffered at the hands of Gentiles. And when you suffered like that, you suffered like me and you suffered like all the believers back in the Jerusalem area. And when you suffered for Jesus, that's when it was obvious that you received the gospel as if God himself told you. You see that? God works in us. We have to embrace our suffering for God's glory, for his glory, for the name of Jesus. The Thessalonian miracle teaches us lessons in gospel ministry. I want to ask John to come, and we're going to partake of communion in just a moment. And keep in mind that that Thessalonian miracle has taught us lessons in gospel ministry. And just before we partake in communion, I want to make an appeal. If you, if you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ, don't partake of this table because this table is proclaiming that you have trusted him. But if you have not yet trusted Jesus, place your trust in him today. Come and talk to us. We'll pray with you and we'll baptize you in the name of Jesus. And you confess with your mouth and you're baptized in his name. You will be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. And then you will join us at these tables and demonstrate time after time with us that you belong to Jesus and that it's his grace that sustains you. And so we're going to come to these tables here in a moment. But even before we come, I, I want to point out just a couple things. And, and this is the whole thrust of this message. No, we're not the apostles. But we've been entrusted with the gospel. And there is glorious gospel ministry for us to do. Many of you are already engaged in gospel ministry to one another. But there's even more for us to do. And can you see that by walking through these lessons, we need to love the grace of God more we need to be bolder in our testimony of the name of Jesus Christ. We need to not be afraid. Just the other day, I had the opportunity to witness to someone. And, and it was interesting because this, this man, before he even knew who I was, he got his whole perspective on Jesus out there. He got it out there and he, he basically said he's a, good, he's a good man, but stopped anything short of saying he's the Savior. So here I was in this conundrum. Do I bring up Jesus with this person? You know, do I talk about the Savior? They've already signaled to me that they disagree. And I had to ask myself, and, and I'm ashamed to say I wasn't quicker to go there. By God's grace, I was able to testify to Jesus. But I know that hindrance in our hearts. I think the bottom line is we just need to love the gospel more, celebrate it more, enjoy it more. Remember what kind of grace it is to us. Remember how we've been saved in such an undeserving fashion to the point where Jesus is on our lips. And then to be affectionately desirous of those that don't know him and those that do, that they would know him all the more. And then to become a good imitator, even to the point of suffering so that the name of Jesus can go forward. Crossway Church, we cannot do business as usual. We must proclaim the name of Jesus.
for the glory of God. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.